Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. If you've been listening to this podcast or are new to it, I thank you very much. I would also appreciate if you took a moment and followed it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. I have known this week's guest for at least 20 years. He is that guy who used to read science fiction as a child and dream about making those visions come true. And he's doing just that. Robert Hogg is the deputy mission manager for NASA's Mars 2020 project, NASA's latest Mars rover. Robert began his career at NASA in 1997 as a flight software engineer on the Deep Space One spacecraft, which tested 12 advanced high-risk technologies in space and returned priceless images from Comet Borelli. The Perseverance rover will search for signs of past life on Mars using seven advanced instruments capturing the most promising soil and rock samples using a drilling and caching system to return to Earth with a later robotic vehicle. Welcome, Robert. Thank you very much, John. Good to, good to see you again here. Yeah, no, this is, this is great that we're able to do this because I think it's going to be um, really inspirational for aspiring writers, or actually for that matter, I think we're going to have a lot of advanced writers also wanting to uh, listen to this podcast to um, get some of the, uh, I guess, some, some more facts and figures about what really is happening in, in our current level of, of space exploration. So um, anyway, well, we'll get into your role at JPL, but to start, was there any science fiction author or novel that inspired you to, to pursue robotics when you were a, a, a pup? Uh, that, that's a great question. I'm glad I get to talk to your, uh, your, your science fiction fans and, and the, the folks who listen to this podcast, because I am a huge science fiction fan and fiction and, I did a lot of reading when I was younger, and, and yeah, that has led to living science fiction to a greater or lesser degree here over these last years. Um, I, I have read all kinds of uh, fantasy and sci-fi. Uh, I've uh, read Isaac Asimov, uh, Battlefield Earth from L. Ron Hubbard, who you know is one of my favorites. I've uh, read the Wheel of Time series by Jordan and... Uh, uh, Brandon Sanderson finished that off for him. And and to your question, on, on being kind of inspired when I was younger, I, I just, it was such a great playground of fantastical realms and other planets to get me thinking about all kinds of amazing things that might be possible. And then I kind of set into a path when I was younger on, hey, maybe I can do some wild things with robots along those lines. And it seems like, you know, the whole computer thing is coming along nicely and a robot is essentially a computer, you know, uh, something is a computer that can interact with the environment, right? Sense what's going on with the environment and then act uh, in the environment. And so uh, that, that led me into this uh, whole area of exploring space with robots and exploring the solar system and, the surface of Mars with robots. So for sure, science fiction let my young mind uh, adventure uh, when I was younger through all those different stories. And yeah, it, it's just been a, a great ride. Well, that's great. I have a question. You mentioned Asimov was one of your favorite authors. His, his three rules of robotics, how much is, does JPL follow that? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. So I'd say we follow it pretty closely, and I, we're not to the point, I think, as 
uh, a society or the evolution of engineering and, and technology where we have to worry too much about some of those rules. But I think we're in, I think we're in good line with all three of them going forward. Our, our robots tend to do exactly as we say, and no more and no less. And so uh, not much of a danger of, uh, to, to people or, or themselves. Well, Actually, we, we do train them to not harm themselves over there on the surface of Mars because you can't just send out a technician to go and press the reset button or uh, fix a screw that's loose. So they, they really need to be able to operate by themselves and, and stay safe on their own. And uh, we, we can get into that in detail if you'd like in, in sure. your podcast here. Absolutely. So, um, you know, just... Part of this thing for the thing for this uh, podcast is you mentioned that you really like Battlefield Earth. Elwin Hubbard wrote in his introduction, science fiction does not come after the fact of a scientific discovery or development. It is the herald of possibility. It is the plea that someone should work on the future, yet it is not prophecy. It is a dream that precedes the dawn when the inventor or scientist awakens and goes to his books or his lab saying, I wonder whether I could make that dream come true in the world of real science. And that's just exactly what you're doing. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, that's such a great quote. It's there, there's a great interplay between sci-fi authors creating something, you know, first in their minds, and then and then laying it out for their readers to to explore, creating things that have never existed before, like ever in right. in the history of humankind, and then. And then um, engineers and scientists thinking about some of those ideas and then figuring out, hey, that, that's an interesting thought. Maybe something could fly above the surface of the earth and, and we don't just have, you know, just drive around on wheels. Or maybe uh, we could send something over there and see what those canals on Mars are and, and get in touch with the civilization over there or whatever, right? It, it, it can cause big shifts in the whole, the, the whole technology evolution and, and levels of skill of a society. And then vice versa, I think it's an interplay or, or a cycle that then uh, science fiction authors, again, who are incredibly creative, maybe listen to this podcast and hear something about, you know, how, how Perseverance the Rover is operating over there. And then they can go off and use that to feed some crazy story about, you know, some adventure that happens on Mars and you, you discover a trap door and down you go into the, the <laughs> Alice in Wonderland over there on Mars. So I, I think that's great. And, and, and I, I think there's a nice flow both directions, particularly fiction to, to engineering, but the other way as well. It's, it's fascinating. Yeah. We've had in the past, We've had a couple speakers from JPL, keynote speakers for Writers of the Future. Oh, cool. And we also, and we also had the director of, the, um, of NASA's Ames Research, who also was a keynote speaker. And they all spoke about how their, their start was reading science fiction. It inspired them. There, there you go. The, the, yeah, so NASA Ames is, that's great. The, there are, I think there's 12 uh, NASA centers. And so he's the director, the head of an entire NASA center, at JPL, we have somewhere between five and six thousand people. I think it's closer to six thousand. So that that's that uh, person at NASA Ames is responsible for a, a 
a huge chunk of what NASA does and the research and the flight projects that they're working on over there. Um, so I'm happy to hear that he also was inspired by science fiction, uh, just, just like myself. Yeah, he said he got busted once in, um, in history class. He had his history book, but inside of it, he was reading a science fiction book and the teacher caught him. So. Well, it's a good thing he was because he went on to be a, you know, a, yeah. NASA, a NASA director. Yeah. yeah, he said he was just reading about the history of the future. So uh, <laughs> it didn't work. But anyway, what a great answer. That's fantastic. I'm going to, I'm going to use that. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm reading about what's going to happen in the future. That's great. Yes. Now, when we first met, you were newly at JPL, but you'd already had a track record of helping young people with robotics, how to build and compete in robotics um, competitions. Are you still doing that? And what was the inspiration on that? Uh, yeah, so that's you're you're talking about the the first robotics program, which stands for for inspiration and recognition of science and technology, and it was founded by uh, Dean Kamen, who's a really a prolific inventor. He he uh, made his mark in uh, medical devices and medical robots, and then he went and invented the Segway and kicked off that whole industry. So. He uh, and a professor at MIT named Woody Flowers kind of figured out that our, our colleges and universities weren't providing the best hands-on education or, you know, uh, degrees that folks, that, that graduates could use to immediately go out and, and just create new and exciting uh, things in their fields. And so, and also a situation similar in high school. So he started this competition to get specifically high school students, so that they could figure out how to take their education, math and physics and, and what have you, and apply it in some way mm -hmm. and immediately and really to, to help the STEM education in our country. And uh, so science, technology, engineering, and math, right? And, right. and I, as, as an engineer at JPL and at NASA, fully wholeheartedly believed in that mission and I actually flew to Massachusetts with a bunch of other people and went to Dean Kamen's house to a get together to learn about the whole thing. And then I started a, a first robotics team, a high school team, and uh, with uh, four local private schools. Um, and we essentially got these high school kids making these five foot high, 130 pound robots from nothing, from aluminum motors, you know, a, a a computer controller, some motor controllers, and then even better, they they go to a, a local competition like a like a in a big arena, like the Long Beach Sports Arena is the latest one that's been being used. And just like all star uh, basketball players, they they go down and they compete in these big arenas with loud music playing, and all their family and friends and crowds are cheering, and they they play these uh, competitions against other teams. So it's a whole spectacle, and it really gets them fired up about uh, engineering and and math, and and uh, so then I went on to become the the head referee for the Los Angeles regional competition. We had uh, sixty high school teams coming there every year, and I did that for um, like five or six years straight. And then I I couldn't do it this last year because. We were landing this little robot on Mars, so I got I got a little busy. So I'm gonna I'm gonna get back to that. But yeah, I for anybody who's interested, uh, just go to uh, usfirst.org, um, and they they also have not just high school competition, but 
grade school and, and uh, lower school so that younger kids can get involved with Lego leagues and uh, stuff like that. Great. So now what do you do as the deputy mission manager for the Mars 2020 mission? Uh, let's see, do we have three, four hours here or just the, <laughs> so let me, let me start with the mission kind of uh, high, high level view. And then, sure. and then the short version to your question is, my boss and our team are entirely responsible for running the mission on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, figuring out how to make things better and being more productive and, and really getting the mission done that we've all been designing uh, and testing and getting ready for for the last seven years. So we have a whole team that, that uh, sees how, what the rover did on Mars on any given day and then we call it downlinks, downlinks information via four orbiters that are going around the planet. And then, so we see where it drove that, that day. Did it successfully drive where we wanted it to? And uh, how are the temperatures over there? And did the arm successfully take that picture that we wanted? And then the team plans the next day, um, a series of commands, and we send up that plan to the rover in the morning on Mars, and then it carries out its instructions all day and then reports back as the, these orbiters go by. And we repeat that cycle every day, all week, uh, for these last months since February 18th, um, since we landed on Mars. Um, so, How long does it take for a signal to go from Earth to Mars? Uh, somewhere between 12 and 18 minutes. I think we're about Maybe it's longer than that. I think we're at about 16 minutes right now. So that's at the speed of light. Uh, so we have a uh, big radio antennas called the Deep Space Network. And maybe you've seen them or your viewers have seen them in, in movies. There's uh, one at in uh, Canberra, Australia, and, and uh, one in Madrid, Spain, and one in Goldstone here in California. And so we have a giant radar dish that sends our radio signals, our commands to the rover, and those commands travel at the speed of light, so they take about 15 minutes to get there. And then on the, uh, on the way back, though, we have a different setup for being able to efficiently run this rover, any rover, and that is since, <laughs> since we don't have a ginormous uh, antenna on the rover, it's too big, it, it would take uh, too much power to get that much um, bandwidth uh, coming back. So we can directly talk back to Earth, but it's only on the order of like 800 bits per second. Yeah. Bits per second, right? Not yeah. megabits, gigabits. <laughs> um, so what we do is we use a trick where we talk in a, in a better frequency where we can send more bandwidth to the orbiters that are going by overhead, including the uh, TGO orbiter, who's with the, the, Euros the European Space Agency. That's a European orbiter. And every time one of the orbiters goes overhead, the rover uh, points its much smaller dish antenna at the orbiter and downloads information before the orbiter goes out of view. And then the orbiter waits until Earth rises on the other yeah. side of Mars so that it has a direct line of sight to Earth. And then it sends the data um, at a much higher bandwidth uh, back to Earth, and that also takes 15 minutes, back to your question. So so we, we tell the rover what to do, it knows about what to do about 15 minutes later, and then throughout the day, it reports back to us 
uh, via these orbiters and lets us know um, how it did on its instructions for the day. Wow, that's cool. So um, now, what's this motor control system that you designed that actually controls all the different motors in Rover? So, uh, yeah, so I worked on the motor control system on, on MSL, on the Mars Science Lab, which is uh, the Curiosity rover. And so this rover is the, is the uh, evolutionary child of Curiosity, which is the evolutionary child of the MER rovers from 2004. And then the great-grandfather is uh, the Sojourner rover, which JPL landed in 1997, the, the week that I started working at JPL. So I, so I worked for several years on the motor control system on MSL, on Curiosity, and then we reused a lot of the designs and some of the hardware that was left over from the MSL mission. Um, so we started with the same motor control system that I worked on for several years as a kind of a port, point of departure for the design of the Perseverance motor control system. Fortunately, some other engineers came on and did a a much better job of motor control than I could on this project. So I, I didn't have to do that this time around. And also we got new um, new types of motors to use on this rover using Hall effect sensors. It's a different way of figuring out where the motor is. And so that system uh, is uh, instantiated, is run by a, a separate electronics box, which we call the Rover Motor Controller Assembly. And it's got about 18 uh, uh, cards that, that uh, source power to each motor and read the sensors and a processor card. So a completely separate processor from the rover. So this rover has several different processors that uh, do different things. And so that box runs all the motors on the rover. The, the, uh, the six wheels, uh, drive motors, the, the, the four steer motors that allow us to turn in place, the five motors on the, the, the robotic arm, our seven-foot-long giant robotic arm, three motors on the, on the remote sensing mast, two motors on the, the high-gain antenna. So that box runs all the motors on the rover and allows it to move across Mars and do communication sessions and point the, uh, the remote science instruments at, at the rocks that we're trying to zap and the rocks we're trying to image. That's good. And then... Does that also control the helicopter? Uh, it, it does not. So glad you brought the helicopter. Yeah. Uh, uh, we, the helicopter is so cool. <laughs> we, so this time around, John, we decided to uh, send a helicopter to Mars, tucked in on the belly of the rover. It's funny. When you, when you tell people that we sent this little helicopter to Mars, that, and this was my reaction. Like, what? You can't fly on Mars because the atmosphere on Mars is about 1% of Earth's atmosphere. So what I, what I tell uh, my students is, if you, if you wave your hand at your face, like you're fanning your face to cool yourself off, yeah. you would feel one one-hundredth of that if you did that on Mars. So it's very, very thin atmosphere. Um, but turns out if you have a relatively light helicopter and you make uh, blades that are much fatter, carbon fiber blades, much fatter than, than uh, an, an Earth's equivalent helicopter, and you spin them at about 2,500 revolutions per minute, you can generate enough lift 
to lift this uh, tiny amount of weight up off the surface and, uh, and, and fly it on Mars. And that is what we did over the last few, few months. And it, it, it was quite inexperienced, I, I have to say. It, it's a very long story, but the helicopter wasn't originally baseline to, to go on this project. It wasn't originally selected as one of the science instruments, but the, uh, the then director of JPL, Charles Alachi, really wanted to, to push the envelope and see if we could make this thing happen. And so the JPL team working on the helicopter in 2017 or maybe 2018, they did a prototype flight in a space simulator chamber that we have at JPL. It's a 25 foot in diameter and very tall. And the, the key thing about this chamber is that we're able to suck the atmosphere out of it and make it 1%, just like Mars. And we can also uh, cool off the temperature in the chamber to Martian temperatures as low as minus 120 Celsius, which is uh, one of the temperatures we tested the rover at. So the helicopter team took their prototype, put it in the chamber. They still had um, an offboard computer and offboard power and using their control algorithm and, and adjusting the rotors uh, after a lot of design work over the years, they got this thing flying in 1% atmosphere. And that uh, gave, so then NASA headquarters gave us the go ahead to, Bosch had to make the full, the full prototype. And then about a year later, they did a full prototype test with processor on board, the batteries on board, everything on board. And all it had was a, a little string, like a rubber band, pulling it from above to simulate Martian gravity. Because while you can simulate Martian pressure in the chamber and Martian temperature, you're still under Earth gravity. And so you need some other uh, sneaky way of, of creating Martian gravity. So it provided a little bit of pull to represent uh, the, the lesser gravity on Mars. And Long story short, John, it flew, and we couldn't believe our eyes. And uh, I'll send you uh, some video of the of that chamber test, um, and uh, it, it was amazing. And so then that really started the series of events that led to the the NASA administrator, the person in charge of NASA, to green light putting the helicopter on the mission. And and I at that time had spent a lot of time uh, personally as a systems engineer working on the incorporation and accommodation of the helicopter onto the rover because we needed to fold it up and fit it in and figure out how to power it and figure out uh, certain uh, digital lines that we could know how to uh, deploy it. And uh, so it, it got the green light to fly to Mars. Um, and uh, we, then we had to spend a lot of time, a, a big team effort to get it integrated into the, the main rover body and stow it underneath the belly. Mm -hmm. And away it went and it, it uh, made it to the surface of Mars. So that's, that's the backstory. Um, and I can go into more details on the, uh, on the experience after that, if you'd like. Sure. Yeah. That's like, cause that was, I mean, this is a brand new thing. This was like absolutely groundbreaking, just this whole thing here of actually getting another vehicle to another planet and having it actually fly and send back information. That, that's right. You, you nailed it. And uh, the, the specific, we'll call it Guinness world record on a different planet, not this world is it, it was and is the first powered flight 
on another planet. Did you get a Guinness? The, the, I, so I'm not on the helicopter team. I'm on the rubber team, and I will check uh, after we're done here how that's, that's going because I, I work uh, I work daily with the helicopter. I'm the interface for them on the rover side, so I've been yeah. working intimately with them on this whole thing. So, yeah, this is the first time that anything has been flown outside of planet Earth, period. And and it was done in such a, a spectacular manner. Um, it, it was really <laughs> so. We so we called the helicopter field where it first flew. We named it Wright Brothers Field. That's and good. also, I, I don't know if you know this. Um, we were able to get a very small piece of cloth from the original Wright Brothers plane. I believe it's called the Kitty Hawk, and yeah. that is. Anchored to the helicopter, you know, and, and somewhere it's not going to get in the way. So anyway, it, it carried a memento or a uh, a piece of evolution with it from the Wright brothers' plane, and it has it with it on Mars. And and so, you know, we definitely felt like that there was a tie there from that first Earth flight to this first Mars flight. Wow, that's just amazing. You know, just the backstories that you're able to provide for us here. So, um, so for you, what's been the coolest part of this mission so far? Uh, well, so, so I worked for several years as the surface phase lead. So that means, so there's different phases of the mission, assembling, testing, uh, getting it to the, the launch site, launching it, and then cruising to Mars for seven and a half months, and then entry, descent, and landing, which is the, uh, the seven minutes of terror where we find out uh, if, you know, we successfully landed or created a new crater on Mars. Um, so I was actually there, JPL, not on this one, but on the one before I was, I was a guest there and watched the landing of that. And that went through the whole seven minutes of terror as it was going on. That was on, what was the one just before this one? It was, uh, it was the, the Mars Science Lab, the Curiosity rover. Yeah, Curiosity. Yeah. I was so you, so you experienced the seven minutes. So you experienced the terror with us. <laughs> yeah, but it was also cool seeing, watching everybody in, in mission control there, watching as each step of the way where people like, you see the cheers and shouts. As, and then yeah. when it landed, it was like, yeah. everybody was like so relieved, so ecstatic. You, you, you captured it perfectly. So imagine, so... So I worked for with with my team and, and my associates for years on this surface system, right? This rover, and so imagine uh, it, it's coming down into Mars's atmosphere. And the short version is, uh, it's coming in at tens of thousands of miles per hour, and then it uses a heat shield to slow down. But Martian atmosphere is not quite strong enough to slow it down all the way. So then, drops the heat shield, and out comes a parachute to slow it down another order of magnitude. And then uh, we release the parachute and get out of the way of the back shell and then use retro rockets to slow it down, down two meters per second. And then because uh, we're landing a one ton rover, imagine the amount of force that's needed to slow a one ton rover down from 30,000 miles per hour to zero miles per hour, it's a lot of force. So yeah. those, re those retro rockets are kicking down a lot of force and they can kick up debris, rocks and, and pebbles and dirt 
that will damage the rover and our sensitive instruments. So we have the retro rockets. Uh, we have to remove the retro rockets distance-wise from the rover itself. And so we have this thing called the sky crane, where the rover is lowered from the retro rockets from the descent stage on cables with a data cable. And, and then it's, it's, I think it's uh, 10 meters or something, 20 feet away, something like that. And it lowers the rover down to the surface of Mars with the descent stage 20 feet away, or maybe 30 feet away up higher. And then it releases the cables and flies away. That whole sequence happens in seven minutes. So imagine working on something for seven years, right? Every, every day, <laughs> all week, all year, and then you find out in the next seven minutes whether it survived or not and whether we have a surface mission or not and get to go exploring Mars with this amazing instrument suite and try and find samples for the first time to bring back to Earth. And all that is determined in seven minutes and you have no control over the seven minutes. All that has to happen autonomously because it's 15 minutes away by the speed of light. So back to your question, the most exciting, biggest moment for me was the fact that we successfully landed. And in fact, I was the, the mission, the tactical mission manager on shift uh, running the surface team. And so right after landing the, the entry, descent and landing team, passed the, the keys of the rover over to uh, me and my team to, to take it and do our first uh, shift on Mars. And so I got to experience that up close and personal as, as the tactical mission manager. And we, you know, we thank the EDL team and the cruise team for, for getting us there. And, and then we got right to work on our, the initial checkouts and um, uh, deployments that we needed to do with the rover. So that was that I, I will never forget an experience I will never forget uh, being there and knowing that uh, she survived on the surface and we have a hope of having this glorious uh, you know surface mission surface phase ahead of us. Wow. Um, the, the second one, if, if yeah. you're up for another moment sure. was um, when we got to fly this helicopter on Mars for the first time. so, um, and trying to make a long story short, we got the helicopter packaged up to the rover. We got to the surf. We got the rover to the surface, but we need to safely get the helicopter off of the belly of the rover. And because uh, the helicopter needed to stay so lightweight, the solar cells that it has to, to power itself after uh, disengaging from the rover were not incredibly huge. They need to be lightweight, so it had enough power to uh, charge up and get ready for two minute flights. And also it needed a lot of power, a lot of energy to, to survive the Martian nights, um, which are very cold. So it needed enough energy to keep its electronics box warm so that uh, it didn't have a problem during the night. So again, long story short, that meant that once the helicopter was dropped from the belly of the rover to the surface of Mars, we needed to uncover the helicopter and expose its solar panels to light within 25 hours, no fail. Otherwise the helicopter might not survive the night and it, it would be, you know, a, a catastrophic and sad end to the helicopter mission if it made it all the way to the Mars and we couldn't, you know, do, do a good job of, of deploying it and giving it uh, solar energy. So 
uh, my team was in charge of that. And I, I directly worked on that and ran that whole uh, deployment. And so over a period of a week, we swung the helicopter down, deployed two legs, uh, locked it into place, deployed the other two legs. And then we created a very special um, tactical shift where we were doing two-way two communication directly to the rover using that 800 bits per second to see, to verify that it dropped to the surface. And um, it, it was uh, uh, terrifying as, as I described, because you know we really needed to make sure that this thing was gonna make it so we could do the technology flights. And we pulled it off, we successfully deployed it. We had the rover drive away automatically after it knew that it was deployed to give ourselves a better chance of getting the deployment done if a human had to step in. Um, but the rover autonomously drove away, uncovered the helicopter solar cells to light, and I breathed a huge sigh of relief uh, that, that we were able to deliver it safely to the surface of Mars. And then as, as the cake or the cherry on top, um, I, was, I was, again, uh, because I was so involved with the helicopter and their team, I, I was the, the rover mission manager on shift when we did the first flight on Mars. Um, and um, so Dr. Justin Mackey, who's our imaging scientist and, and chief imaging engineer, was on shift uh, part of the team that, that I was running that day. And so he was looking at images from the rover that the rover captured of the helicopter's first flight. So the helicopter was about uh, 60 meters away, about 180 feet, and and we we captured using uh, thumbnail movies or low a low res movie the first flight in in the history of humankind. Um, and we got those uh, those little thumbnails down first, and then we got higher resolution pictures down. So uh, I was in our control room standing next to uh, Justin and looking over his shoulder and he was refreshing, waiting for these images to come, getting ready to show them. And the, the whole helicopter team was there looking at their, their instrumentation to see how the accelerometers and the gyros did on the flight. And, and we got these images down and I, I'm looking at this, this tiny little blur, this pixelated little uh, thing on the screen that, that, that's the helicopter. And he said, okay, we got the images and he's flipping through them, just like you know, you'd flip through pictures on your computer. And then all of a sudden, because we didn't have every single frame, it jumped up into the air because the first flight was up, it was, uh, was 10 feet high, it's about three meters high. And I was sitting there next to him going, oh my God, it, it made it up into the air, it's, it's flying, it's stable. And then I was just waiting to see if it was going to land because as you know, and I'm sure everybody knows, it's, you know, it's all about the landing as well, as far as danger to a, a flight vehicle. And then a few more uh, frames skipped by and it landed successfully. And we just went nuts and celebrated that, that this thing had actually pulled it off. So it just did this very simple flight, 10 feet into the air, hover for 30 seconds and then drop back down. Uh, but, but that was enough to prove just for the first flight that that you could do controlled powered flight and and then the team went on to do um now we're up to our we just did our eighth flight over this last weekend and so the next flights after that got more and more um 
sporty and faster. We, we hovered and then turned in place and then came back down and then did a, an offset by a few meters and then back towards the rover. And then uh, we did flights of over 100 meters traveling across the surface of Mars at 10 feet, uh, or sorry, 10 meters above the ground, about 30 feet above the ground, taking images. And so the helicopter is still going strong. And so now we're using it, uh, we're calling it an extended operations demo. We're now done with the tech demo aspect of it. So we're using it for an operations demo to see how a helicopter can, can uh, work with a rover on Mars, exploring the surface of another planet. And the science team was able to use one of the uh, high-res color helicopter images to pick out a science target. And um, it's just it's just a huge success, John. The, the helicopter team are, are all heroes. And um, this is a big feather in, in the cap for JPL and for NASA and really the, the whole country. And I, I think is a great inspiration for not just this country, but uh, everybody who, who lives on planet Earth here. Oh, that's great. So... So because it's got the, on the helicopter, just one last question that how long could it actually operate before it needs to go down? Is it like a two minute type of a thing that where it's got power? Or can it go five minutes? Can it go 10 minutes? Yeah. So it, so it does short flights of approximately up to two minutes and it depends on how much energy is needed to survive the night. And in those two, so we charge, it takes all day to charge or or initially we were thinking it was going to take maybe two or three days to charge up between flights, but the solar cells are working very well. And I think dust gets blown off them and they, we didn't need as much energy as we thought to survive the night. So it really only needs one day to charge before the next flight. But yeah, each flight is about two minutes or less, mm -hmm. um, but, but it can travel. I mean, it's capable of going much faster, but so far I think, the fastest that we have flown it is four meters per second. But, you know, if you can, if you can fly uh, four meters per second for a hundred seconds, only a hundred seconds, 400 meters, that's longer than any rover has ever driven on Mars in only two minutes. And, and, you know, the rover takes hours and hours to cover that distance or days um, without, we, we don't yet have our autonomous navigation uh, we're in the middle of checking out our autonomous navigation system. So right now, because the rover is being directed by um, uh, our rover planners on the ground, only as far as we can see from the rover cameras, we only drive about uh, 50 meters a day on the rover. And and yeah, one, with these helicopter flights, we're not there yet, but we should be in a position soon where we're going to try several hundred meters in one flight in one of those two-minute flights. Got it. Now, are you able like to fly two minutes and set it down and let it charge up for a day, then start up from 400 meters away and then pick it up again, go another 400 meters and let it stop and then charge it up? Can you do that? So yes. just to come home? Yeah, we, we are, great question. That's a very nuanced question. And you strike out a key thing, which is initially in operations with the helicopter, we, we always flew it back to its airfield, Wright Brothers Airfield, where we knew every aspect of the train. We knew every inch of that airfield because we had investigated it with the rover to carry out mm -hmm. this tech demo. So the first, I think is the first five flights, something like that, 
it would go out and come back and land in the same 10 by 10 meter square. But after that, after the technology demonstration was done and we had achieved everything that we wanted to do on the technology demo, we went into this extended operations demo and that involves, yeah, getting ahead of the rover because we need to stay in communication range of the rover with the helicopter so we can keep commanding the helicopter. And so for example, it flew 130 meters, I believe, south by south, south by southwest ahead of the rover. And then the rover did these shorter hops to catch up to it. And then on Sunday, it just flew, I think it was about 150, 160 meters south to another landing spot, which, which the rover and the helicopter have not imaged yet. So the helicopter team is now picking uh, the best landing sites they can from orbital imagery from the pictures that we take from orbit from these different orbiters I described that are not uh, they're very high resolution but the, the spacecraft is so high up up in orbit that uh, you know you can't you can't detect five centimeter obstacles or or you know 10 centimeter rocks that might be a problem so right now the helicopter team is using, uh, the best orbital image they, imagery that they can to pick these next spots to hop to. Got it. Okay, so now what would actually happen if either the, the helicopter or rover actually did discover life on Mars? I think some are looking to find only plankton or some such or some hit something that happened a million years ago. But what about actually finding wreckage or evidence of life? Uh, there appears to be riverbeds there, but what about sensors indicating something else there? What would happen if you did that? Would that be immediately like shut down the black walls and all the veins and put everything in complete lockdown as this is all like amazingly new technology and oh my gosh, what would happen? Yeah, the the, the men in black step in and zap everybody. I think <laughs> at, at this point I should say my opinions are my own and not of those of, you know, NASA, NASA headquarters. No, it's we're, we are we are sending rovers to Mars and these other planets to find life and, and evidence of life. That is one of the biggest questions that I believe that NASA is engaged on and, and one of the reasons that NASA exists. And, and NASA exists because, uh, you know, the country wants... To, to do things like that. And other countries want to go. The, the Chinese just landed a rover on Mars. Yeah, Zurong. I was going to ask you about that too. That, that, that is, I, I, I'm all for other, other countries landing on Mars and other planetary bodies and exploring them. I, I think the more the merrier. And, and so this is the first time we've had a neighbor on Mars, which <laughs> is kind of cool because up, up till now, it's been only JPL rovers and landers that have successfully landed uh, on Mars, um, this, this, this NASA center that I work at. So now getting back to these aliens now. Yeah, back to the aliens. Thank you. Thank you for keeping me on point here. So we have uh, fantastic orbital imagery for a while there. I think it was better than Google Maps of Earth. We have better orbital imagery. So, you know, I think it's down to like one pixel per square foot and a half or something like that. So, you know, if there were uh, cows walking around or, or square structures from the last civilization or whatever, we would have found those already. Uh, we've, we've blanketed that planet with, with uh, cameras like you wouldn't believe. So there's nothing like that. 
And in talking to the scientists on this project, I think they, they firmly believe that there is no current life. Now, I'm not a scientist, and it's just the, the surface conditions are so harsh over there. The atmosphere you know, left millions and millions of years ago, and, and so there's not much to protect the surface from the sun's rays, and then there's the temperature swings, and very acidic and, and caustic, but Curiosity discovered and this is one of the main findings of, of the Curiosity rover, the MSL mission, that there's material, I'll call it clay or material, that has all of the components that life could grow in. And, and this was a huge question because previously, I, I believe, and again, I need to say I'm not a scientist, I'm an engineer, but from what I've heard from them, we, we thought that maybe all the surface of Mars was extremely caustic and acidic to the point where uh, life couldn't survive on the surface or grow. But for lack of a better way of describing it, you could take, uh, you know, an apple, an apple seed or some plant seeds and put a little dome, fill it with oxygen at, at different locations in this clay area and just grow plants right there on the surface of Mars. So that was a huge discovery and finding. And then you mentioned these these big uh, river flows. Yeah, we where we landed Perseverance is is uh, in a huge delta area in this huge crater. It's called Jezero Crater. And the reason we aim specifically at that spot in Jezero Crater is because of that giant flow, that giant delta coming into the area where back when Mars was wet and there was these big flows of of water and other liquids going through we imagine that all the components that were needed for, for life are there in that area. And so we're specifically targeting scientifically relevant areas of, of that delta of Jezero Crater to find the best samples to, to cache and take back. And so that brings me to the, the, actually the main reason that this project exists and this mission, which I should have mentioned at the beginning, and that is we are starting on the beginning of, we call it the, the first sample return mission to Mars that has existed. And this has been talked about at NASA and at JPL for decades on, on doing this, but this, this Perseverance, this Mars 2020 project is the beginning of science of, of sample return from Mars to Earth in that Perseverance has this whole sampling caching system built into the front of the rover, which was designed from scratch and when we drive around to these different areas in Jezero Crater and use our uh, incredible seven instruments to find really scientifically interesting things, and hopefully uh, we call them biosignatures. We've got uh, spectrometers and incredible instruments to, to figure out that there are biosignatures that we're investigating. And once we find these biosignatures, we're gonna uh, take samples into these tubes and, and cache the tubes into the rover. And then after about a year or two of exploration and caching, we're gonna take these tubes and drop them all in one particular spot so that they can be picked up by a future fetch rover. And then the fetch rover is gonna take the, the samples to a, a Mars rocket. It's the first Mars rocket that JPL is working on, the Mars Ascent Vehicle. And the samples are going to be launched into orbit and then picked up by a European orbiter and brought back to Earth. And 
the reason we're going through all these hoops, John, is uh, I, the way that one of the deputy scientists of the project described it to me the other day is the burden of proof that what we're seeing in that sample is in fact a sign of life that didn't come from planet Earth. It, th that, that burden of proof is so high that you need, you know, laboratories and laboratories full of equipment that are peer reviewed to with absolute certainty, 100% certainty say, yes, we have discovered life on another planet for the first time. And we can't take all that equipment to Mars. So we're bringing the samples back here. And, and then we will, the, those samples will get passed around the world to the, the various labs and they will do the research. And then they will say, yes, we have found uh, life on another planet. And in, in my opinion, my personal opinion, that would be, you know, the scientific find of, of the millennium of the, yeah. of, of the century. Um, so yeah, we're not looking for men in black over there at this, at this time. We are looking for signs of ancient microbial life, but that's because that's what we think we can find as far as proof, again, of life somewhere other than, than planet Earth. Right, unless you actually find that hatch. That, that's right, unless the hatch or the bowler hat where the guy left it when he was going back down his hatch. You got exactly, it. exactly. So... That is, that's just, it's so exciting. It's so exciting. Now, hard science fiction is really cool if it's done right. And it's a really turnoff if it's, if it's not. So what type of advice do you have for writers of hard science fiction about getting it right? You know, like you've got, you live the life of, of science and of, of real life engineering, what works and not work. And so as an experienced reader, you're not an author particularly, but you're an experienced reader. And so you're a fan um, what tips would you have in terms of getting science right and how to, how to be able to find the correct science? To, so to answer your question, I'm going to, I'm going to flip the answer on you a little bit as a, as a sci-fi fan and fiction fan. So I read the Martian and actually I didn't read it for a, a few years because I was like, you know, going, eh, I live this stuff every day. I don't need to read more about, you know, the technology and the engineering of going to Mars. But one of the reasons I think The Martian by Andy Weir, one of the reasons it was so good is because he focused on the characters and the story arc and the adventure that they were having. And the, the science and the technology was very strong, except for maybe that uh, fire extinguisher scene, but I won't go there, <laughs> and, or, or, or concept. But... But he, he, he obviously does research and he knew from an engineering aspect uh, the playground within which he was writing. And so I think he did a great job of dressing up his story and his characters with fantastic technology and engineering and science topics, but they weren't the focus of his writing. And in my opinion, as a reader and a fan, that's, that's what made The Martian so good. So to your question... If I were to advise anybody, I would say, as always, as a writer, focus on your story and, and, and your message and your story arc and your incredible characters. And then, yeah, do your best to get it right on the engineering side, only so long as it forwards and helps the, the story and the characters that, that you're conveying. And then, and then you'll nail it. And, uh, and uh, your engineering fans like me will uh, be happy across the board. Good. That's good. 
Now, are there certain um, pages on that JPL has on its in its homepage where a person can go into to get some of the actual science of what's happening right now? Uh, I yes. So I can send you some links. Um, that's one of the, the, the great things that I like about what, what we do and what NASA does. We, <laughs> we, we take these missions of exploration and we just proliferate the information out to scientists all over the world. So for example, set up for my project right now as we speak is a raw images website. And John, every engineering camera image and the mass cam I think almost all the cameras are now set up on this feed. They automatically get published to the raw images site. There's no, there's no uh, middleman or, or filtering or anything. And so on some of these helicopter flights, we had, a, had to kind of get ahead of the, the, the media relations people who I was working with had to get their tweets and their announcements out quick because the raw images were hitting the website. They automatically hit within... Uh, minutes, I think, at this point, or seconds. And so, for example, all the raw images from the mission that the rover captures every day and that come from the helicopter just get dumped directly to the raw images site. So everybody can go and jump on there. And then as far as the other kind of uh, scientific data, those I think are released from each instrument team because they have their own instrument like uh, the folks in Spain are running the, the weather station. The folks in Norway are running the, um, the uh, radar instrument that finds obstacles and, and objects under the ground, the ground penetrating radar. So the instrument teams can release their, their science data uh, and they do out to um, partner scientists that are at different wow. institutions and universities that's all just, over the this world. This is just so cool. So that's, they just go to JPL and it's just, you, top, you type in raw images? Yep. Yep, just just type in uh, Mars 2020 raw images, and and uh, you can join the search for uh, the Men in Black. And uh, if anybody finds any, you know, lizards that that don't need oxygen to to survive, let me know. Uh, s send me an email. But yeah, no joke. I get on there and shift sometimes, and I I crack open the latest images that come down and have a look at this new environment that the rover is driven into over 100, you know, 170 million miles away to see what's new and what, what we might have found next. That's great. One last question here now. So we're all, I mean, you're also off because of the fact you said you were seven years in the making of this particular mission here. Are there any missions right now that you're starting on or that's going on that's going to take us now to the next planet or are we, are we kind of locked and loaded on between Moon and Mars? So we are... Like I, like I said on the, the Mars sample return, we, are, we already have uh, permission from Congress and funding to, to start the, the next phase of the Mars sample return mission. And so uh, JPL is working on that with our European partners. And we will be launching the, the Fetch rover and the, uh, the, the Mars Ascent vehicle. Um, and it, I think it was 2026. I think it might have already slipped to 2028. So, so JPL is working furiously on that. And then also we have uh, missions that are going to Europa. 
Um, yeah, we got the moon, Jupiter's moons. Yep, yeah. one of Jupiter's moons, which which looks to be a really interesting moon. And um, so there's there was a lander mission. Now we're definitely doing a, a a orbiter mission. And I I've been so nose deep in this Mars mission, I don't remember the status of the lander mission. But at some point, we're going to land something on the surface of Europa and investigate that moon. And then uh, we also just had two. Uh, projects approved to go to Venus. And we haven't been to Venus for decades. And so just, you know, a few weeks ago, actually the the project manager for the helicopter project was the lead um, was the lead for for the proposal for one of the Venus missions. And so I was just congratulating her on that mission getting approval. So we'll be we'll be going back to Venus to investigate that planet. So yeah, we're gonna we're gonna keep exploring the solar system, and uh, we'll see what we can find out there. That's so awesome! I just this has been so great having a chance to talk with you, Robert. Thank you very much. Thank you. Great questions, John. Great, and thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network, where you can find these podcasts as well by just typing in Writers of the Future. I also highly recommend you read the Writers of the Future series. These are, after all, who our judges have selected as the best of the best new writers and artists. They can be found at writersofthefuture.com, at Amazon, or wherever you get your books. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elwin Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Rob. Glad to be here. Thanks again.